The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, November 20th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. see all of you this morning. If you're a guest with us, my name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill, and I get to uh, serve us in our time together now for the next little bit as we read and teach from God's Word. So if you've got your Bibles or you want to use one of the Bibles in front of you, go ahead and open it up to the book of 1 Thessalonians, the, the first letter we have of the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica. It's towards the back half of the Bible. I think it's on page 988 in the Bible in front of you, if I remember correctly. Um, we have been there for the last couple of months uh, walking through this letter. And, and as much as it grieves me to say it, today is a day of endings uh, because we are going to end our time in 1 Thessalonians to go this morning. And I figured out a couple of ways to actually prolong our time in 1 Thessalonians, but I'll refrain from doing it because next week is the beginning of the Advent season. So... We will be jumping into that starting next week, but my prayer is that as we come to a close in 1 Thessalonians this morning, that it will continue to serve your heart and your joy and your encouragement in the gospel for days and weeks to come. It has been a letter of great encouragement to me. It has sparked wonderful conversations in our home, and so my prayer is that that continues for you in the coming weeks. Um, but we are going to conclude it this week. And as a reminder, with, with Advent next week, the holidays after that, if, if you grab that guide you got on your way in, on the back side, under these events and opportunities, there's a little link there, rhc.to slash events. If you go to that link, there is a Spotify playlist there of all the songs that we're going to be learning and singing together through the holiday season. So you can go ahead and begin to listen to them in your homes, uh, in your car, when you're driving, familiarize yourself with songs you may not yet know or re-familiarize yourself with songs that you have loved for the holidays. And then we'll be singing them together throughout the season leading up to Christmas morning together. So uh, that's there for you. Make use of that. But we are ending 1 Thessalonians this morning. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And at the same time, today, something else is beginning. It's the end of something, but at the same time, it's the beginning of something great. For those of you that may not be aware of it, today marks the beginning of the best five weeks in all sports. That's right. Today, at 11 o'clock a.m., in a matter of like seven minutes, the World Cup kicks off. So for the next five weeks, many of us will be out of office, uh, so to speak, kind of, you know. Uh, I shouldn't say that, right? But it, it begins today... Watch the U.S. twice this coming week. Um, maybe I'm abusing pastoral privilege to say that. I don't know. But what does 1 Thessalonians 5 in particular have to do with the World Cup? Directly nothing. At all, really. Um, indirectly, though. Indirectly, it does. So I can't just say things like that without bringing them back into context. Indirectly, they do have something in common. Uh, over the course of the next five weeks, at, at some point in time, uh, many teams who have spent years together working, learning towards this one aim, this one purpose in front of them, are going to be out there on the field playing, and time is going to wind down, and in soccer, you get extra time. So extra time is even going to wind down, and all that they have been focused on, and all that they have been playing for, and all that they have been working towards is going to be on the line, 
And it's going to come to an end. And when that moment comes and the clock is winding down and all that they have been working for is, is laying there on the line, there is amongst every team someone that they want to have the ball. When that clock winds down and it's all out there, every team has at least one player that they want to have the ball. That there's no better place for the ball to be than at their feet in that moment. Now, for the U.S., we, we wish we could call up some of the U.S. women's national players for that moment, but we can't. But it's not just soccer. It exists in, in pretty much every sporting adventure if you're not a soccer fan. Basketball, you know, when the clock is winding down and the game is tied, you've got a final possession. There is someone on the court on your team. You want to have the ball. No better place for that ball to be. Being almost 47 for me, it would be Jordan or Bird maybe. I don't understand the current context of those things, but football is the same thing. Less than two minutes left, tie game, one last possession. You want it in Pat Mahomes' hands. You want it in Brady's hands. There's no better place for the ball to be than right there. I don't understand how baseball works. Um, I guess you cross your fingers and just hope, you know, that at the bottom of the ninth when game is tied, the base is loaded, you know, the ninth hitter isn't up to bat, you know. You hope it's that fourth spot, you know. I don't know. I don't know baseball. I don't know how it works. But you get the picture. When, it, when it's all on the line, ultimately and finally, when what you have been working for and looking towards is right there, there is someone whose hands you want the ball in, whose feet, there could be no better place for that ball to find itself, right? This morning, as we come to the Apostle Paul's final words of encouragement to the church in, in this letter, when it comes down to it, he is going to remind God's people that our salvation, our transformation, our, our preservation, even to the day in which Jesus returns, the, the proverbial ball, so to speak, it is in the best hands. It is at the best feet possible. And they're not yours and they're not mine. They're someone else's. Chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I love the way Eugene Peterson captured the sentiment of the Apostle Paul here in his message version. Peterson said, may God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole, put you together, spirit, soul, and body, and keep you fit for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who called you is completely dependable. If he said it, he will do it. These last words of the Apostle Paul are what you and I might call a benediction, a blessing, a, a call out of prayer and encouragement. These are Paul's last words of encouragement that he intends to, to spur on the church in assurance to deposit gospel confidence, gospel courage in God in their soul, to 
to reinforce, so to speak, a, a spiritual steel in the spines of God's people as they live under the weight of life in a fallen world. And as we think about Paul's final encouragement, there are a number of things that he is saying to this church that, that I pray this morning God, through his word, would, would deposit courage into your hearts through would reinforce a, a, a steel in your spiritual spine. And the first thing the Apostle Paul is reminding them of again is that it's God who is at work in you, maturing you into Christ-likeness. Listen to him. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Now, if you've been with us at all as we've gone through this letter, so to speak, we, we, we've come across this idea of being sanctified already. Paul has been talking about this with this church in this letter already. It's a big word if you're not familiar with it, but, but really all, what the word means and what it's pointing to is this process of you and I being increasingly transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus, our hearts being refit, reformed, recalibrated to want the things that bring God joy, to want the things that Jesus wants, that we would live in the way that Jesus lived. It's a process of being changed from the inside out into the likeness of Jesus, right? In fact, in chapter 4, Paul has already reminded this church that it's God's will for them that they be sanctified. That all that we are come into conformity with the character of Christ. One writer put it this way, it's being increasingly taking every element of our being, moving from the inside out and bringing it into harmony with the will and the kingdom of God. It's the process of the affections and the desires of our hearts being reformed and being recalibrated to love what Jesus loves. Another writer said it this way, it's a process by which we move and are being moved from self-worship to Christ-centered self-denial. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Paul, Paul didn't say, may God himself provide you some helpful assistance as you work hard to make yourself like Jesus. He didn't say, I hope God proves handy as you go about the business of making yourself holy. Now, now, Paul has reminded the church already we do have a role to play in this process of sanctification, of our hearts and lives being conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. There are habits and practices and rhythms that informed by God the Holy Spirit and empowered by God the Holy Spirit help us to increasingly become people for whom it's natural to want what Jesus wants and to do what Jesus would do. But in the end, Paul is reminding them that this maturation in Christ, this spiritual formation, this recalibration of the heart and the soul to reflect Jesus, it's God's work in us. That being the case, it means that, that God in the end is more engaged in our holiness, our sanctification than even we are. For the church in, in Ephesus, Paul said that God chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
Before the foundation of the world, God purposed this for you and I. He's that committed to it, right? And however committed you and I are to the process of being conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus, Paul's point is that God is more committed to your holiness. He's more committed to your growth in his grace. So committed is he to it that he will never quit on that process in you. He is at work in you, bringing the very thing that he has willed for all of eternity for your greatest joy. He is at work in you, bringing that very thing that he purposed to pass. That's how committed he is. God is at work in you. In this very process. But Paul gets even more specific than that for them. For their encouragement. For their joy. Paul said that the one at work in you bringing this to pass. Is the God of wholeness. The God of flourishing. The God of peace. Paul said himself. You see, in the world of the Israelite, the Hebrew world, the, the idea of peace was, was much bigger and broader than simply something that's the, that, that lacks conflict. It's not just the absence of conflict as you and I think about it, right? Peace in the Hebrew mind and in the Hebrew world and the world of the Bible is a much bigger idea. It's encapsulated, maybe you're familiar with it, it's encapsulated by the word shalom. Now, I've not read a better description of this than was written by a philosophy professor from Notre Dame. His name is Cornelius Pantinga. He wrote a book about sin. It's called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And in that book, this is what he said about the peace that Paul is speaking about even here. He said, in the Bible, shalom means universal wholeness, universal flourishing and delight, a rich state of affairs, so much so that it inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Not just the mere absence of conflict, right? And so he would go on to encapsulate the way that God would speak through the prophets of the Old Testament about this peace that God was bringing, about this kingdom that was to come. And he says this, the prophets dreamed of a new age in which human crookedness would be straightened out, rough places made plain, the foolish would be made wise and the wise made humble. They spoke of a time when the deserts would flower, the mountains would run with wine, weeping would cease, and people could go to sleep without weapons in their laps. People would work in peace and work to fruitful effect. Lambs could lie down with lions. Nature would be fruitful and filled with wonder upon wonder. Humanity would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood. And all of nature and all of humans would look to God, walk with God, lean toward God, and delight in God. Shouts of joy and recognition would well up from valleys and seas, from women in the streets and men on the ships. The webbing together of God, humanity, and all of creation, injustice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. Peace. 
Paul is reminding the church that the God who is at work in them, and not just at work in them, but at work in them for them, their joy and greatest good, is the God of this shalom, this peace, whose kingdom is peace. And who's at work in you, fitting you and readying you for this kingdom. It's him and him alone who took the initiative to be reconciled to his creation. The very ones who continued to live defiantly towards him. And and he's done that through the sacrifice of his own son as a substitute for defiant sinners like you and me. Through his son, making a way for the hostility between us to end, making peace, making shalom. But remember, it's not just the absence of that conflict, it's much more. He's ended this hostility between us and is now working in us for our wholeness, preparing us for an eternity with him as things are meant to be. As he spoke about through his prophets. Shalom with him. Peace with him. And wholeness and flourishing from him. This reality would lead Robert Yarborough, a great New Testament scholar, to say, in light of God's divine justice and holiness, and in light of our sin, Bare forgiveness would be an infinite treasure to our heart, right? In light of his holiness and justice and the reality of our sin, just the simple, how I shouldn't even use that word, just the grace of his forgiveness would be enough. But peace, he said, this shalom, this denotes a fullness of fellowship and a wholeness of being. And Paul is reminding them that God himself, the one of wholeness and flourishing, has committed himself to you to bring about in you and through you the very thing that he has willed for all of eternity for your highest good and greatest joy. The God of peace And shalom and wholeness is at work in you and for you and through you. Paul reminds them as well that this God, he doesn't do things halfway. May he sanctify you, Paul says, completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is reminding this church that this process of maturation, this process of formation, it's comprehensive. It involves and it impacts every single aspect of what it means to be human. The nature of his transforming work, his transforming grace is so extensive that just as we sang, sons of disgrace are now righteous made. In every way, shape, form, and fashion, God intends to make you like his son completely. And it's a process that he has already begun. 
And so I want you to hear, as we're just considering the things that Paul is emphasizing in the end of this letter in order to encourage this church, I don't want you to miss that that Paul is even reminding them, though, of something he's been saying all along, that their ongoing spiritual formation, their their ongoing transformation, their, their, their growth in holiness is very important. It's not to be trivialized. Increasing conformity of all that we are to the likeness of Jesus. Thoughts, our motivations, the affections of our hearts. As our mind thinks on things and our, our heart inflames those things with affection that begins to drive the actions of our life. All that we are is intended to be brought into increasing conformity to Jesus. A life that is increasingly less and less ordered around me, myself, and I. As we said earlier, a a, a life that is dying daily to that kind of egocentric view of the world. Putting to death and resisting that kind of temptation that so easily ensnares us. Dying to that day by day that we might live more and more to Christ. It's a process. And the reality of it is, and we've talked about this already, if you go back and you want to listen to it, that that process is not one that will ever be completed in this lifetime. It's a process that takes an entire lifetime and, and won't ultimately and fully be completed until the day in which Jesus returns. Which means it's a transformation in a process that in every way, shape, form, or fashion is dependent upon Jesus. Which is why Paul is even praying this prayer and reminding them of these things. And he wants them to know as they're facing this reality of, of this promise and this work and yet the reality of present temptation and present sin that God doesn't do things halfway. What he starts, he finishes. Yes, Paul wants them to make progress in maturation now. Yes, God has started that process now. Yes, day by day, we are increasingly being conformed into the image and likeness of Jesus now. But if we're really honest, it's very easy in light of the presence of sin in our hearts. The things that so easily capture us, it's it's easy to find ourselves a bit melancholy at best maybe despairing even at worst with the reality of the remaining dwellings of sin inside of us. How little at times we even want the things that God intends to bring us great joy. So Paul is even reminding them of the comprehensiveness of this promise and that there is a day that's going to come even though it's a process. There is a day that's going to come when there will be no more discouragement at the reality of indwelling sin in your heart. No more discouragement at the perceived lack of growth and maturation in your life. There's going to be a day when the sun is going to come up and it's going to be the last sunrise on this process. Because on that day, Jesus is going to return. And when he returns, this process will be fully and finally completed and we will see him and we will finally be made like him. And sin will be gone. Temptation will be gone. 
tears will be no more. What he starts, he finishes. And it's no halfway transformation. You see, if God doesn't do more than simply intend for us to be fully like Jesus, we're in trouble. If if God only intends for this to be what happens in us and this process to be completed when Jesus returns, we're in trouble. Which is why Paul reminds them that God more than intends for us to be made like Jesus. His purpose extends to preserving us until the day of Jesus' return. May God of peace himself keep you, Paul says. May you be kept, sheltered, held tight to, preserved in such a way that nothing, nothing can take you from his hand. I was amazed for a short period of time I lived in Minneapolis and I heard John Piper say something one time that I think all of us who were sitting there had to write it, write it down because I, I didn't think, this is 20-something years, 25-something years ago, I, I didn't think in my immaturity you were allowed to say things like this. Like, wait a minute, did he just say what I, I think he said? I moved up here to learn from this guy. I'm not sure I should be here. You know, like I, I was so immature, I, I didn't understand, but I get it now. Piper said, I'm amazed when I wake up in the morning that I'm still a Christian. And I realize the fact that I awake in the morning and I'm still a Christian is entirely due to the preserving grace of God. Entirely. That he, he said, has kept me. Preserved me. I think in heart he he was expressing as he had come to realize in his own life The very thing that that made the the brother of Jesus himself, Jude, writing in in his letter, ended this way. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Not him who's able to do it. The only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. To him be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. it's so easy for you and I to lose sight of God's preserving grace on our lives. Lose sight of it in affection and and be deceived into the fact that as we wake up recognizing ourselves a Christian, we somehow attribute it to something that we did. And on the good days, that leads us to only be increasingly arrogant in places that we're not meant to be arrogant. And on the bad days, when we wake up and realize that we're still a Christian and yet we know the darkness of the sin in our hearts and the things that we so desire and crave, how they're antithetical to a life pleasing to God, we become incredibly despairing. It's so easy to lose sight of the preserving grace of God, and Paul doesn't want that for the church. He's reminding them that in no way, shape, form, or fashion did you earn, create, generate, or build up for yourself this perseverance. It's all due to the patience and kindness and grace of God. To him and him alone who is able to keep you. 
and to in that day present you blameless, sanctified, holy. Friends, I hope you hear the Apostle Paul this morning. The God of wholeness, the God of wonder, the God of flourishing has committed himself to your complete, comprehensive, and utter transformation. So committed to that, to you is he, that he didn't spare his own son, but willingly gave him up as a sacrifice for your sins in your place. He has made it his intention to keep you for the day on which his son will return. And the process of being made and transformed and conformed fully into his image will come to an end. The Apostle Paul intended for this to be a deposit of courage into the hearts of God's people. He intended this to to be a a reinforcement of their spiritual spine as they, they faced tremendous pressure and temptation for following Jesus in their day. I hope you hear Paul this morning. I have no illusion about it, though, and I I don't have any illusion about it when it comes to the Thessalonians. I I think when they hear this and and their heart senses the reality of that promise, immediately it's still confronted with the reality of sin. It's still confronted with the reality of the darkness in their own heart. Even as the promise is remembered, even as the promise is reminded, even as it's spoken of and, and talked about as it would have been read to them like it's being read to you, there's still... Still this ongoing sin and sense of failure that leave us wondering, how in the world is that ever going to happen? How is it even possible? Our sense of assurance in this can be so fickle and temperamental and so easily provoked and swayed. Because I think this is what makes Paul's last statement here so spectacular. He could have ended right where he ended right there in verse 23. I mean, that was all true and all glorious. That is gospel courage for the soul, everything he said. But I think as a sinful man himself, Paul recognizes the need in the hearts of God's people for reminders of assurance that we're so faint-hearted so easily discouraged that he says one more thing. He who calls you, Paul said. He's going all the way back to where it started. All the way back to their calling. It's the same place he started the letter from when he reminded them of God's choosing of them, his calling of them. And then for nearly half the letter, he's just pointed out evidence after evidence after evidence of that truth being born and brought to reality in their lives. All the evidence of grace reminding them of God's calling of them. That their calling, their salvation, their redemption wasn't their own idea. It came by the wisdom, love, and initiative of God himself. The God of peace who graciously called them to himself 
and made peace with him possible through the sacrifice of his son in their place, the Prince of Peace. And now by his grace towards them is conforming them into the image of his son, fitting them, readying them for his kingdom of peace for all of eternity. That it was his initiative and his intention that came before and even empowered any response from them to him. Even their response of repentance and faith came after his initiative and his empowerment towards them. He, and he alone, is the decisive factor in their calling. He acted upon them before they ever acted for him in any way. In fact, so heavy are these words, he's reminding them that God acted in initiative towards them and for them, and if he had not done that and even empowered their response towards him, they could have never responded because they are dead in their sin and trespass, utterly unresponsive. But he who called them, the God of peace, who's rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, Paul tells the church in Ephesus, even when we were dead in sin and trespass, utterly unresponsive in ourselves to him, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, called. He who has called you, he is faithful. He will surely do it. Do what? Bring to final completion the process that he began in your calling, that he purposed before all of eternity, that he made possible through the sacrifice of his son. He will do it. He will make you like Jesus. He will comprehensively transform everything that you are into a reflection of his son, and he will keep you until the day that that transformation is complete. This has always been his intention and his purpose. Paul will tell the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 1.4 that God chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world that we might be holy and blameless before him in love. That Jesus so loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he would sanctify her. That he would make her holy. You see, friends, your maturation in Jesus, your, your spiritual conformity to Christ, your spiritual formation, that whole process, your preservation until the day that it's done, it is as sure and certain. It is as certain as God's purpose in the death of his son in your place. As purposeful and certain as Jesus' death in your place for your sin is as purposeful and certain as God's promise to keep you and transform you completely into the image of his son. He who sent his son to die for you is faithful. He will do what he's promised. See, friends, the whole of the Christian life hangs on God's grace. 
from beginning to end, it literally hangs on his grace. It hangs on his faithfulness. It hangs on his power. It hangs on his intention. It hangs on his mercy. It hangs on him and his grace in every way imaginable. That's why New Testament scholar Leon Morris would say it is profoundly satisfying to the believer. And if I could pray while I'm talking, my prayer is that you find what he's about to say profoundly satisfying. It's profoundly satisfying to the believer that in the last resort, what matters is not your feeble hold on God, but God's strong grip on you. You see, when life, if we're even to trivialize it by saying it, when this game of life is coming to the end, when time is running out and time is coming to an end, On the day in which Jesus returns and there is no longer the ball is in the hands and at the feet of the most secure, the most powerful, and the most faithful ever imaginable. It's not yours and it's not mine. It's Jesus's. Spurgeon said, then remember this. It's not your hold on Jesus that saves you. It's Jesus. It's not your joy in Jesus that saves you. It's Jesus. It's not even faith, though that may be the instrument. It's Jesus' blood and merit. Therefore, look not so much to your hand with which you are holding Jesus as much as you look to Jesus. Look not to your hope, look to Jesus, the source of your hope. Look not to your faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayer, our doings, our actions, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives assurance and rest to the soul. And if you're here this morning and you walked in and you're willing to be honest with yourself, you walked in somewhat defeated, maybe even feeling distant from God, hearing this about his grip upon you and his faithfulness to keep you to the end, his his sure and certain eternal purposes to make you like his son. And you would say, "I, I don't really know anything of that. Friends, today could be the day of salvation for you. And there's no fancy litany of prayers you have to pray. There's no special public things you have to do. It's simply to recognize that what you need is Jesus. It's as simple as a humble cry from the heart that says, Lord, I believe. Please help my unbelief. I promise you, that said sincerely from a heart of humility, recognizing the need for Jesus. On the day of his return, there won't be anyone 
who stands before Jesus, who will say, I wanted you to forgive me. I wanted to be changed into your likeness and image. I wanted to reflect you. I wanted to follow you, but you didn't forgive me. It won't happen. It won't happen. All it takes is from a heart of humble sincerity to say, I believe. Even help the places where I struggle to believe. If you came in here this morning feeling like there was very little hope for you, maybe you came into this place because you thought maybe of a last resort, I'll go to a church. All that God has promised and all that God has held out, all that Paul has been talking about, the forgiveness of your sins now, forever, and for all of eternity, but more than that, a wholeness for which you were intended to have. A wholeness of being that you were created for. Friends, this salvation, this wholeness can be yours. You just have to call out to him. Because what he starts, finishes. Of this, the Apostle Paul is very certain. And I believe in God preserving this letter for us now, God intends for us to have the same assurance and the same confidence that Paul wanted for this church then. In the face of mounting pressures and mounting temptations and mounting resistance to following Jesus and being conformed into his image and likeness, Paul wants God's people to have gospel assurance and confidence. Wholeness is what God has always intended for you. The grace, Paul said, of our Lord Jesus Christ in all of this be with you. One more time, Paul is just reminding us that our growth in Christ, our maturity in the faith, our our process of being made like Jesus is dependent upon God's grace being at work in us. From start to finish, it hangs 100% upon the grace of God. And there's no better, more sure, and more certain place for it to be. And friends, it's this saving, transforming, preserving grace that we have the opportunity to remember and to celebrate this morning as we respond together to God's word. We, we do this every single week as we come together, not because there's something that says we have to, but because it's a rhythm that expresses the reality of what's going on in our hearts. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray in just a minute, and then we're going to give you a minute or two of silence. And in that moment of silence, we just want you to consider what God's word was saying this morning, what God's Holy Spirit through his word might be doing in your heart, how he might be leading you to respond to him. And then for those who have surrendered their hearts and their souls and their lives to Jesus, who The repentance and faith, the ongoing process of recognizing their continued need for Jesus and and by faith, trusting in the promise of God for you in Jesus today, tomorrow, and the next day. For for those who have given themselves by faith to Jesus, you're going to be invited to come forward and proclaim your confidence in him. And before that scares you, we're not going to give you a microphone. You don't have to say anything. What you're going to do is you're going to come forward and you're going to take a piece of bread Bread that, that reminds us it, 
It takes our hearts and our minds back to Jesus' body, broken, crucified, in our place for our sin, a death that he died that he didn't deserve, but he did it in our place. And you're going to dip that bread in the cup, remembering the blood of Christ shed for our forgiveness. And in doing that, you are actually making a physical, bodily declaration. You are saying to everyone else around you that my hope, my confidence is in the faithfulness and steadfastness of God to me in Jesus. This is where my hope and confidence is. You're declaring that through that act. And so if you're here this morning and and you're here and you would say, well, I I would not consider myself a, a follower of Jesus. We are so glad that you are here. I promise you there isn't anyone who calls this place home who would want nothing more than to help you better understand who Jesus is, right? But this morning, as people come forward to take the bread, to dip it in the cup, and to declare their confidence in Jesus, we're going to ask you to do something that, that's going to require probably a little bit of courage and a little bit of, a bit of, of honesty on your part. And we're just going to ask you to remain where you are. We don't want you to come forward because other people around you are and make some kind of false proclamation or declaration about yourself that isn't true. I promise you, no one here is looking around trying to figure out who's coming forward and who's not, right? More than anything, what we want is for you to see and begin to enjoy the grace of God to you and Jesus. We want to help you better understand that. Grab one of us. We'll we'll find a time to get together and talk about it, right? But as we respond to God's word, as we reflect and respond then by receiving communion, declaring our confidence in him. We're going to declare our confidence as we sing, as we make much of him with our mouths before he sends us out from here as his people. That's the rhythm. That's why we do what we do. That's why we respond the way we respond. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to give you a moment to reflect, and then we're going to continue to respond to his word this morning. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. God, we pray this morning, we pray that you would make each of us look more like your son. God, sanctify us completely. Our thoughts, our desires, our words, our actions, our motives, literally every part of who we are. God, make it more like Jesus. God, we we ask these things and we have a confidence to ask these things because we trust in your faithfulness. You're faithful to your promise. You're faithful to your word. And so we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit who is alive and at work in us, you would bring us into increasing conformity to Jesus. And Jesus, Jesus, we ask you this morning to come back quickly. Let today be the day of your return. Let today be the day that the process comes to final completion. We're fully and completely like you. No more temptation, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death. Come quickly, Jesus. If it's not today, help us to live in greater anticipation for that day. Help us as we wake up tomorrow to be more like you than we were today. We ask these things in your holy name, for your glory, for our deepest joy. Amen. 
You've been listening to a message by Robert Green, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.